Well, Valentine's Day is right around the corner. And for some, that creates in our mind these warm, tender thoughts of love, trust, and intimacy, right? But for others, it's not such a pleasant experience. Because when we, when we think of Valentine's Day and we think about our closest relationships, sometimes we cringe because they're not exactly what they should be. You know, it's interesting to me. When you think of uh, mistreatment, when it comes from the hands of people that are merely acquaintances, it hurts. But you kind of wipe it off and kind of go on. But when it comes from the people that are closest to you, it's very, very, very difficult, isn't it? And very, very, very painful. I mean, all you have to do is look at the news and you watch, you watch a mother who is so fed up with her young child that she kills that child. Think to yourself, how could you, how could you violate a trust like that? Or, or, or you look at a man who's been married to his wife for 20, 30 years, only to walk away and shack up with a young secretary somewhere. You think to yourself, like, how, do you, how does that happen? And, and the pain is very intense in those kinds of moments and situations. Makes me think of a story I was reading again this week. This particular fellow was a, was a minister, and he fell in love with a young woman who fell in love with him. Some people question whether he should actually marry her. Um, she had a bit of a sordid past and was sometimes viewed as being flirtatious and different things. But he was convinced God wanted him to marry her, so he, he did. And the first year was a wonderful year. Matter of fact, at the end of that year, she became pregnant, and they gave birth to their first child, a boy. But then things began to slip. Um, there wasn't the smile, there wasn't the twinkle in her eye anymore. She just seemed to be kind of drifting and thinking of something else. And then, she wouldn't come home sometimes until late at night. And one thing after another after another, and the husband was beginning to suspect an extramarital affair. But he didn't know for sure. She got pregnant with her second son, and he wasn't even convinced that the child was his. And when the child was born, he'll tell you he had a hard time loving the child because he wasn't sure if the child was his own. Things went from bad to worse. Rumors around town that she's seeing not just one, but several men. She got pregnant a third time. And he was almost convinced this child wasn't his. Finally, she said she wanted out. She had loved another, and he divorced her. But he couldn't leave her go. He couldn't forget her. He kept thinking about her. He would see her from time to time around town. She didn't look right to him. In time, he started a conversation with her again. Found out that she wasn't happy. And 
as strange as it sounds, he chose to pursue her again. She responded. He even went to her lover, who she was with, who didn't want to leave her go because there was all kinds of financial benefits to having her in the home. So she ba he basically paid the guy off. And eventually, she moved back with her parents for a lengthy engagement period in which they could work things through. He married her again. And they lived happily ever after. Did you ever hear that story before? It's a story of Hosea. Flip over there, if you would, to Hosea chapter 1. I want you to notice a couple things about this story. Here's the point. At, at the end of the day, the Hosea story is not about us having close marital relationships. It's not the point. It, Hosea doesn't tell the story for that reason. He doesn't tell the story so you turn around and get to the end and say, Oh man, I hope my Valentine's Day is really rich. Hosea is doing something very, very different. And, and look, this is unique this is not a model for how to visit, uh, how to marry a woman, okay? I mean, you got to be really, really careful when you come to the prophets. You say, well, he did it, I should do it. No, 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 no. There's some unique things going on. Here's the point, folks. God is so concerned that the nation of Israel and Judah would understand his relationship with them that he chooses the relationship between Hosea and Gomer as a picture. So that the nation could have a sense of how does God feel when a nation walks away from their God? What does that look like? What does it feel like? And so what I want to do, I want to work through Hosea 1 to 3, and we're going to go through it rather quickly. I'm not going to read every verse. But what you find in Hosea 1 to 3 is there's kind of three rounds, if you will. The first round is in chapter 1, second round in chapter 2, third round in chapter 3. And what you're going to find is a repetition, a pattern going on there. You're going to say, hey, he keeps hitting these same themes. Exactly. There's three or four themes that he hits you with each time. In the first story, in chapter 1, Hosea and Gomer are front stage. They're right there. The analogy is very clear. He's pointing to God, but they're right there. In, in the second chapter, they fall under the background. You don't really... They're not front and center. And in the third chapter, they're front and center again. But through it all, this is not a story, a love story about a man and a woman. This is ultimately a love story about God. So don't lose that as we work through it. Because there's some things that happen here in chapter 2 that Hosea doesn't do. This is only God that can do some of this stuff. The analogy breaks down at some point. So, look, uh, look at what it says. The Bible says, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, The word of the Lord came to Hosea. And this happened in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. 
That's pretty strong language, isn't it? How would you like that message from God? For, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblium, and she conceived and she bore him a son. The indication is it was actually their child, the first one. The Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, which just means God sows. It's a farming term. God sows. That's it. So call him Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put to an end the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel and the valley of Jezreel. Now, that gets somewhat confusing, but all it means is this. God says, you know what? I've been putting up with Israel for the longest time. Every single king in the northern kingdom, everyone was evil. At least Judah had a couple good ones. But everyone in the north was evil. And God said, you know what? Jehu came on the scene and he sowed and he destroyed people. So I'm going to now sow again, but I will sow judgment on them. That's what he says. God, it's just a way of saying, your name, your son's name means, I am going to deal with my people. That's strong stuff, folks. What happens? Gomer conceives again, verse 6. There's a daughter, and the Lord said to him, Call her name, No Mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah... And I will save them by the Lord their God. I'm going to have mercy on Judah for a little while because they at least have a couple good kings. But for Israel, it is curtains. So, what's your child's name? Oh, her name is No Mercy. Well, hi, No Mercy. Yeah, that's... But every time they hear that name, it's a reminder that God is saying, I've been resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted and resisted. No mercy for the nation. I am now going to sow and I'm going to act. She has a third child. And the indication in the text is the second and third child weren't even Hosea's. It's the indication. And the Lord says in verse 9, call his name, not my people. So how do you like that? You have, them over for, have these people over for uh, activities. Hey, what are your kids' name? Well, God sows. Okay. That, that, uh, uh, no mercy. And uh, not my people. Hey, hey, not my people. Don't touch that over there. You know, whatever. I mean, three kids. And what happens is Hosea and Gomer's life becomes nothing but an illustration of the fact that God's going to judge. You say, hey, thanks a lot, Doug. I came out here today. Valentine's Day is coming up. This is like one negative message. But notice how the text turns. Look, if you will, in verse 10. Remember, God sows. No mercy, not my people. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. Whoa, 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 whoa. I just thought you just said, like, they're out of here. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall call upon the land, they shall call up from the land 
For great shall be the day of Jezreel. And you know what God is saying? I will sow again, but what I will sow is blessing for my people. So in this first round, is God deeply troubled by the way the nation is treating him? Without a doubt. Will God deal with them because of the way that they've mistreated him? Without a doubt. Is God finished with them? Absolutely not. For the God who says, not my people, no mercy, I will sow. Is the God who says, you are my people, I will be merciful, and I will sow blessing in your life. Same God. Okay, round one, round one. What's Hosea doing round two? In round two, Hosea and Gomer are out of there, man. They're not really part of the picture when you read chapter two. And again, what you find is this. And folks, this is what I think is so important. It is amazing to me that the God of the universe would set his affection upon us. And then be pained and troubled and hurt when we resist him. Isn't that amazing? And that's what happens in this second chapter with the nation. He's going to actually talk about to the children using the same imagery about the way the mother uh, Israel's been living. And, he, and just so you know, when you read through chapter 2, he talks about the people living in an ungodly way and the land as not producing. And he kind of mixes all that stuff together. It's just, it's what they do. And, and, and he says a couple interesting things. I want you to notice this. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. Again, in this first major movement, when, when you read the first eight, nine verses, I'm sorry, the verse thir- first 13 verses, everything is negative as God talks about the present situation. But he says some interesting things because it's all about the fact that because the nation has gone astray, God will discipline them. Look at what he says. Verse 5, for their mother has played the whore. She has conceived them. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. I'm going to go after all those false gods. Listen to what God says in verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge her up away with thorns. And I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For it was better for me then than it is now. And what he says is, look, um, because I set my affection upon this nation, I will not allow them to find any satisfaction with anything other than me. So when they run, they will never find. When they seek, they won't attain. Because I won't allow it. I love them too much for that. He goes on to say this. Look at verse 8. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. God says, 
Everything good that my people have experienced goes to me. And what hurts me deeply, God says, is they don't even realize it's from me. They think they got it from Baal. So what will I do? Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were, which were to cover her nakedness. I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all of her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all of her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees. Of which she says, these are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall devour them. I will punish her for the, for the feasts of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring of jewelry. So again, what do you hear in these verses? It's sober, isn't it? It's, it's God saying, I will not share my people with another, so when you go that way, I will discipline you for what you have done. That's, that's absolutely clear, isn't it? Does it then mean that there's no hope for this group? No. Look at verse 14. Just like we found in chapter 1. Again, we find it here in chapter 2. Therefore, behold, I will have nothing more to do with her. Is that what your text says? No, no. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. And there, I will give her her vineyards and make the Valley of Acre a, a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by, by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, and I, I will abolish the bow, the sword, and you won't need any of that stuff. I will betroth you to myself forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice. And you shall know the Lord, verse 20. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and, and I will sow her for myself in the land. I will have mercy on no mercy and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. It's the same thing, isn't it? Just like in chapter 1. Oh, when the, when, the, when the nation wanders, it's judgment. It's discipline. God will not share his love with another. But then he will woo them back to himself. Chapter 2. God will not share his people with another. He will discipline them. But then he will woo them back to himself. You get in the feel of what's going on here? Chapter 3. Again, Hosea and Gomer are center stage. The focus here, though, is on the hope. Look at what it says. And the Lord said to me, chapter 3, verse 1, Go again 
Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, that they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So Hosea says, I, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and some barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. So God says, Hosea, I had you marry Gomer the first time so that you and the people might see this object lesson of the incredible pain I face when you forsake me and go your own way. But Hosea, I want you to woo her again. I want you to call her back to yourself. I want you to pay the lover she's living with right now whatever he wants so that she can be yours again. I want you to buy her back. Go through the engagement period and then she'll be yours forever. Because Hosea, that's exactly what I do with my people. Look at how the text ends. Look at verse 4. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gold. So they're going to be in exile. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Now, who do you think that might be? <laughs> it's talking of Jesus. And they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. Hosea, Hosea. If we're ever going to accomplish this restoration, it's going to have to come from a Messiah. And that Messiah is going to come, and as we find out from other prophetic texts and from the New Testament, that Messiah is going to actually pay for the sins of the world so that he can be King Jesus. And at some point in the future, the nation of Israel as a whole will turn back to their God. Hosea, that's why I had you do everything you did. So, you sit here today and you say, it's a great story, Doug. But I'm not Jewish. I'm not living back then. That ain't me. For just a moment, would you turn over to James chapter 4? James chapter 4 you to hear the words of James and what you will find are the exact same themes in James 4 that we find back in Hosea 1, 2, and 3. Where James starts in James chapter 4 is he's got just a heap of trouble with these people that he's writing to. And he's finding they're bickering and complaining and arguing and backbiting and gossiping and all kinds of stuff. And what he's going to say in the first couple of verses is, you know what? At the end of the day, if I'm mistreating people, it means there's something wrong in my heart and my relationship with God. That's always the way it works. So but look what he says in verse 4. Now, this is strong language. It's James. I'm not saying that James is. But you know what? I read this passage and I see Doug Finkbeiner's name written here. And perhaps you find your name too. Look what verse 4 says. 
How does he address them? You adulterous people. Whoa, 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 whoa. Not Lord, 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 Lord. I'm a believer. I've come to know Christ as my Lord and Savior. I'm a follower of His. I'm in a relationship with you, God. And James is able to look at people in that situation and say, yeah, but you know what? Sometimes we're just like the nation of Israel. And he uses the exact same expression. He says, you adulterous people. Why? Look what he goes on to say. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Look, folks, I told you, um, I don't understand my wife sometimes. Because, you know, this week, I told Sherry, I said, Honey, there's a, there's a really nice woman I met. Um, we'll call her Jane. If your name's Jane, I'm not thinking of you. Um, I'm trying to think of a very generic name. But I was wondering if Jane, Jane could move in with us. You know, we'll have our bedroom right here. Jane's room will be right down there. And I can kind of go back and forth, you know? One night here, one night there. Kind of, Honey, I don't, you know, I mean, you know, you're my wife. I love you. But come on. Just a little bit of split time here. And I told you, I, I think it's my wife. And she just didn't go for it. What would you think? You'd think no sane person would. And then I look at my own life. And I try to do the same thing with God. See, we all live in the world. It's part of life. But we're not supposed to be of the world. Well, what is the world? That's kind of like, what is that out there? You know, it's any philosophy which lives without God at the center. That's what it is. Which is most of the things you hear and see around you. And so what if I say, you know, on Sunday, I want God to be the center. But on Monday, I like to be my pleasure to be center. Hey, God, I'll be there on Sunday. Just give me Monday as a break. You know, we'll split bedrooms here. God says you can't have both. You either have me central so that I dominate everything in your life. Your thoughts, your pleasures, your desires, your relationships. It's me. Because you can't have both. No woman would share her husband with another woman. Would she? No man would. Why in the world should God? Look what he goes on to say. Look at verse 5. Do you suppose... It is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. You know what he says? When Doug Finkbeiner tries to live with, with two gods, a God of his own making and the true and living God, God says, I am jealous. I yearn for you and you alone to totally love me because that's how you were designed to be. And I will not share your affection with another. And so the language of jealousy is applied to God. 
amazing? Do you know Christ is your Lord and Savior? He will not share you with another. You are His. And you were meant to only be His. And to have Him at the very center of your heart. Okay, so now what do I do? Look at verse 6. But He gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit your... I'm not going to knock that off. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You can't be in two worlds wanting this and that. You can't be double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. You know what James is saying? What does James say to Christians who are trying to live in two worlds? The world where God is central and a world of gods of their own making. He says, you know what? Try to continue doing that and I will discipline you because I am jealous over you. But you have another option. Look at all those verbs. Submit, draw near, humble, in other words, you come back to God and say, God, I've done it again. And we all struggle with living in two worlds, don't we? And the beauty of the Christian life is we are always repenting. And God is always accepting us back. And we come and we say, God, I've done it again. I, I draw to you. I, I submit to you. I, I, I'm here. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm broken over my sin. Here I am. And God says, are you kidding me, Finkbinder? Are you back again doing this? I mean, like, you get three times a week and that's it, pal. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He gives grace. He forgives. He enables. He strengthens. He redirects. He empowers. Because that's who our God is, folks. So, I guess I'd say it like this. Our awesome God's incomprehensible love for us demands our exclusive love for Him. Isn't that true? He who has given His very own Son that we might be forgiven is the one that says, I freely give you all things that you need, but keep me central. Let me be the great love of your life. And when he is, he can lavish us with everything that he's designed for us rather than discipline his own. So, this holiday, this not holiday season, but this Valentine season, when you read stories of love, ask yourself if you have that kind of love for your God. And if you don't, come before him and say, God, help me. And if you're here today and you're listening to all this, you know, this is a lot of religious talk. I don't even know what you guys are all talking about. Well, you can't grow in a relationship with a God who you don't know. And what you need to do is for the very first time in your life come into a relationship with Him and find the joy of forgiveness that can come only through Jesus Christ.
But if you know Christ, follow God with all of your heart. For that is the way we were designed to live. And God will not share us with another. Father,